Welcome to episode 370 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. I guess we're in the midst of culture. Yes? Yes. Well, we all, I mean, that's like definitional. Exactly. Like you have to be in the midst of culture. There's no, there's no alternative. Exactly. Which is the best way to intro this episode, because I see that the title you set for us that was put on my calendar and yours was Christ Against Christmas Culture. And I purposely said when we started this, don't even tell me what that's about. (laughs) Let's find out together. So I'm going to have some disclaimers about a topic that I don't even know we're explicitly discussing in a little bit, but that's a teaser for you to stick around while we talk about affirmations and denials. So let's now let's go positive first. What are you affirming with on this 370th episode? So this is kind of a retro denial. So I've I've um for many years now, um, really actually I think my discipline of memorizing scripture kind of started around the same time we started the podcast, if I remember correctly. I mean, I did like memory verses in like uh like confirmation class and like middle school and stuff. But I, I really started uh, trying to devote myself to memorizing scripture probably around the same time we started the podcast. And along the way, I've used a couple different apps, but I keep on going back to the classic oldie goodie. It's because there's that you can't like, you can't really get better than the simple. So I use an app called scripture typer. So I'm just, I'm affirming yeah. scripture typer. I actually think they may have changed the name of the app, but if you search for scripture typer, it should still come up. Um, it's got built in spaced repetition. You can import your verses. You can, you have to pay for various, um, various translations, but you only pay for it once. You don't have to pay for it like on an ongoing basis. There's no subscription model. You can do a pro version, but I think there maybe it's not like this anymore, but when I started, you could buy just the pro version for a one-time fee. But even if you don't have the pro version, um, it's still, most of the features are still there. So I would just really encourage, you know, we're coming up to a new year. Um, it's November 25th today as we're recording this. So we're coming into December, which means we're rounding the corner into January very quickly. And although like we've talked about the fact that like the beginning of the year in January is is an arbitrary date and like there's really no like cosmological significance to January 1st, it does mark a new like a good like fresh start point for us. So if you haven't uh, haven't tried the discipline of memorizing scripture, I would really encourage you to think about picking up this habit. Um, you can do one verse a day, like you can do two verses a day. You could do 15 verses a day, whatever is comfortable for you that you can commit to and actually work on. And the, the beautiful thing about scripture typer is it's built on space repetition, which we've talked about many times before. So when you, when you get a, a verse, right, it doesn't just bring it back up again, like immediately it postpones it. And then the next time you get it right, it postpones it even further. And and so this is a really straightforward algorithm. It's like every time you get it right, it doubles the amount of time that it it's waiting before it uh, presents it to you again. And then when you get it wrong, it reduces the amount of time. And the beauty of that is like, if you do a static number of verses every day, there's going to be some days where there's no verses that it's presenting to you because nothing is due, which is a perfect time for you to pick a new verse to add to your memory uh, list. So I've found so much benefit from memorizing scripture. Memorizing Psalm 1, for example, was just really a game changer for me because it really like the world started to come into focus in light of Psalm 1 because that was just like in my brain. It was in my being. So check it out. You can you can pick it up on the App Store if you use Apple. I do believe it's available for Android as well. And I think uh, they have a web-based version that's not quite as user-friendly, but it, it gets the job done. It's called Scripture Typer or Memory Typer. I'll find the actual uh, the actual title of the app here in a minute when Jesse starts talking. But I just can't endorse memorizing Scripture enough. We've been on the scripture typer train going way back. Some people recognize that we talked about that. My days, like way, I don't know, like maybe as long as a hundred, more than a hundred episodes ago, because way that was that. the beginning of the whole theology series. And the beauty of this is it's basically like a scripture memorization coach. And if you grew up in the church, if you were a child in the church, if memorization was part of your upbringing, 
you probably had somebody that was like a person or a program, a one or some other thing that was the impetus for you to be on point with memorizing. It was the force in your life that really pushed you into some kind of regular rhythm and discipline and memorizing scripture. This is that same thing for adults. It's super easy. The beauty of it is in its simplicity. Just try it out, whatever it costs now. And I remember I paid for it again a long time ago. It was like 10 bucks US dollars is totally worth it because it's something actually I do come back to time and time again. And while I have regular seasons and rhythms in my own life where Sometimes there's more or less, quite honestly, focus on memorizing the scripture. Scripture Typer has always been an app through phone after phone, device after device that continues to be updated and downloaded because I come back to it time and time again. So I'm with you. If you're looking for that profound excuse, that better way, so to speak, that discipline that maybe we all need from time to time to make sure that we memorize something in a way that's like meaningful and genial and amicable, scripture Scripture Typer is a great way to do that. So I'm with you. Like you're never going to get anything but an affirmation from me on that app. Yeah. Yeah. Check it out. The, the new name for the app, although the app hasn't changed, it's weird. There's a couple different versions of it, but the new name is called the Bible memory app. Uh, and it's BibleMemory.com scripture game is like the subtitle. If you're on the, the Apple app store, uh, it's like a little red Bible cross logo is the, the logo. You'll know it when you find it. It's it's a pretty straightforward app. I've also used a um, a an app called Verses, which actually I think is a better app, but they don't have spaced repetition, which to me, anytime you're trying to memorize anything, spaced repetition okay. is just the way to go. It's, it's the best way to really work on rote memorization, um, which is not always the most important way to learn things, but if that's what you're going for, spaced repetition really is the way to go. It works for things beyond just like rote memorization too. Like if you're just reviewing data or facts, um, it's the way to go. So Bible memory app, or if you, I think if you type scripture typer, it'll probably still come up. Um, but it's got some, it's got stats. There is like a social aspect to it. You get a ranking. Um, so if that kind of stuff helps motivate you, that's there, but the motivation we should have is just, you know, putting God's word in our heart. And really like when the Bible talks about meditating on God's word, it really is more talking about this sort of recitation memorization kind of thing that we've we've been endorsing now for many years. So check it out, Bible Memory app, Scripture Typer, whatever it's called. Jesse, what are you, I almost said endorsing, what are you affirming today? <laughs> That's actually, this is an endorsement. Sometimes the affirmation is an endorsement. We've been at this long enough. You know, it's 370 for the love. And sometimes that means that you come to an affirmation because it's just the center of gravity of something good. You're drawn back to it and you can't help it. And we're about to talk about Christmas and the season, everything that comes with it. And might I just say, I am I think it's obligatory at this point, like I'm contractually obligated to say how much music is a part of the season. If you pull out, if you divorce from everything that is quote unquote Christmas music, you pull away a lot of the part of the experience for yeah. almost every person that in some way celebrates Christmas. That's a remarkable thing. Like there's no other really, I think, time of the year or celebration in which music plays such a large role for everybody, not just for certain people groups or people of a certain conviction, for everybody. So this is my annual Christmas music affirmation. And to switch it up this year, I'm going to go from most expected that you would hear to come out of my mouth from to least expected, some of which, again, are revisions or recapitulations because some things are so good that you're drawn back to them because it's just a center of gravity. So let me give you three things to listen to this season. And I'm going to tell you briefly why. First, I'm coming back to an old day bookity. First, best Christmas album, Wolves at the Gate, Lowborn. Don't worry about the genre. Just (laughs) listen to it, loved ones. And pull up all the lyrics. If you want something that has heavy theology that talks about the purpose of Christmas, the, the, the... incarnation of God through Jesus Christ and how Jesus Christ is going to embarrass his enemies. And he does that in part right away by coming as a child. Then you just need to listen to Lowborn by Bulls at the Gate. So most expected, if you listen to that, you'll understand why. Second, we're moving into the more unexpected, but I have mentioned this before. Vince Guaraldi trios, Charlie Brown Christmas. Here's why. There's something remarkably special about this album. One, people who say to me, I don't listen to jazz. I don't love jazz. I've never listened to jazz. I tell them to listen to the Charlie Brown theme. And they say, oh yeah, that's right. I like jazz. I've listened to jazz. So that's going to be in this album. But the second part about it is this in some ways embodies everything to me that's important about Christmas. And that is in celebrating the fact 
that God is giving of himself to restore. This album has this beautiful mix of celebration and melancholy. So much of what we listen to at Christmas Eve this time of year is all celebration. This melancholy reminds me of a couple of things, especially that though we're celebrating that Christ is making all things right, that things aren't all right right now. And so when I hear this music and it has this like slight twins of both celebration and sadness, it reminds me that our families are not as they ought to be, that in many cases or in all the cases, they're broken in some way, or that we mourn the loss of ones whom we loved that we want to be around in this time of year when we're celebrating great and big things that are outside of ourselves. And for me, if you listen to this music, I ask you to just turn it on and close your eyes. You're going to hear this in all of the melodies. There's something about it that is beautiful, but also slightly off and not quite right. And that reminds us that there's more to come, that God is making all things right. And that in our glorification, that we will find that perfection, but it hasn't happened yet. Last, the most unexpected, perhaps of all of them, is just a single song that I admonish that you listen to. And this is an artist I've never recommended here, but I think this song is absolutely beautiful. It's Sarah Groves, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear. Now, she takes what is a very traditional song, and the beauty of this is she uses all the same lyrics of the traditional hymn, but reverses and changes up the melody completely so that you would not recognize it except for the words. And the musicality is brilliant and beautiful and haunting. And, and I challenge anybody to listen to this. It's like the edge from, uh, you, you know, like you two played the guitar part on this. Let me just give you, this is the second verse. In case people have like forgot what a beautiful hymn and what amazing poetry is happens and it came upon a midnight clear. This is the third verse. Oh, ye beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow. Look now for glad and golden hours come swiftly on the wing. Oh, rest beside the weary road and hear the angels sing. This is like Christmas music at its finest, but it messes with you because if you're used to hearing a particular melody and so your mind goes on autopilot, this totally changes that for you. Yeah. So three things for you to listen to in ways that are kind of different for me. Go listen to Lowborn Wolves at the Gate, the Vince Garali Trio's Charlie Brown Christmas, and then Sarah Grove's entire album, but especially It Came Up on a Midnight Clear. You cannot go wrong with those three recommendations and affirmations. What do you want to call them? Endorsements from me. <laughs> yeah, I don't have much to add to that. We'll, we'll talk, I'm sure we'll talk about music, Christmas music, a little bit in this episode and in the coming weeks. So maybe I'll postpone some of my comments until they, they come up organically in our conversation. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, again, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it. I got lots of opinions. We could do a whole episode. Maybe we have, but, or maybe not entirely on like music and yeah. Christmas and, you know, common grace after common grace after common grace, glory to glory. So let's leave that here for now. Let's go into the denials. We denying against. So this is one of those, like, I'm a terrible sinner denials where like, I, I recognize something in my own, my own, I don't know, ethos, psyche, whatever sin nature that I just want to sort of like lay bare a little bit, because I think it's always helpful to lay these things bare a little bit. So I've, I've been listening to a podcast and I've listened to this podcast on and off. Um, I have this new way of that. I'm listening to all my podcasts. And so I've been listening to a lot of this particular podcast. It's called the Bible recap. And it's, it's by a, a person named Tara Lee cobbler, cobble, cobble, Tara Lee cobble. Um, you know, like just a pretty typical sounds like maybe a semi Calvinistic predestinarian evangelical. Um, but, but also like just sort of like vanilla middle of the road evangelical most of the time. Some of that may be the, the audience she's trying to reach is very broad. And some of it may just be, that's just her theological leanings. I'm not sure. But where my, where my, my denial of my own sinfulness comes in here is the other day she, um, she played a clip. Uh, I guess she's doing a podcast with Candace Cameron Burr, like from full house. Uh, and she's doing a podcast on like the doctrine of the Trinity and she started to play a clip and she was like spot on with her theology. And this is where my denial comes in. I was really surprised and kind of like taken aback that she was, she was decent on the Trinity. And I realized that there's like this, this sort of like arrogance that I think within the reformed tradition as a whole is probably not uncommon, 
But I was surprised to find someone outside of my immediate tradition that could articulate the doctrine of the Trinity. And what I realized is like, if we really truly believe that the doctrine of the Trinity is ecumenical Christianity, right? and what we mean by that is that even, even other branches of Christianity, and I would say even sub, some sub, somewhat sub-Christian branches of Christianity, like Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, if we're talking about the doctrine of the Trinity as truly ecumenical Christianity, ecumenical doctrine, then we should not be surprised when faithful believers, especially well-studied faithful believers outside of our tradition, are able to articulate the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrine of Christology or whatever the ecumenical doctrine that we're talking about might be. And I just realized, I just came to this moment where I was like, why, why am I so arrogant to think that only my tradition can get this right? Now, I think there are some unique things that the the Reformed tradition, particularly as it's followed Calvin, there are some somewhat unique things that the Reformed tradition has contributed to the doctrine of the Trinity that I think it gets more right than other traditions do. But we are not the only ones that have the ability to articulate ecumenical Christianity faithfully. So I'm just, I, I think maybe this is just a self-corrective for, for all of us probably is that we need to realize that like we're, I'm also reading Job right now. So, um, you know, there's that passage in Job where he's like, are you the only ones that have wisdom or does wisdom right. die with you? He's second to Eliphaz, I think. Like I that that really hit me as like, do I really feel like we're the only ones that have theological wisdom? Not me, like we, like me and you, but like this, the Reformed tradition. Do we really believe that? Do we really feel that way? Because we shouldn't. We really shouldn't. Um, the Reformers didn't think that way. John Calvin didn't think that way. Right. Martin Luther didn't think that way, right? They were they were trying to align themselves with this ecumenical Christianity that was present within the, Refor- the Roman Catholic Church and separate themselves on the things that are not ecumenical Christianity, right? The things like justification by faith alone, which would seem like it's like ecumenical Protestantism, but it's not necessarily ecumenical that not everybody agrees exactly how justification by faith alone works. The, the Lutherans view it a little differently than the reform do, right? We both are, we're both Christians. We both believe that God goes first in salvation, but we view that differently. We would not articulate it exactly the same way. The Trinity is not really like that. So I guess I'm just trying to take a look in the mirror and recognize like I need to step back a little bit sometimes and I really shouldn't be surprised. And, and the other thing is like, if I'm so sure that this, this, person on this podcast can't articulate the doctrine of the Trinity. Why am I spending my time listening to this podcast in the first place? Like if I think that she's such a terrible theological uh, person that she can't articulate the Trinity in any meaningful fashion, then why would I spend my time on this podcast? So it's a little bit of everything. Uh, Mostly it was just me realizing that I, I tend to think that I have the corner on like theological doctrinal purity, um, not necessarily just me, but like my tradition does. And that is not necessarily the case. We need to step back and realize that there's truth outside of the boundaries of reformed Christianity, um, especially as it, it touches on things like ecumenical Christianity, ecumenical doctrines like the Nicene Creed, the Trinity, etc. Sometimes this comes down to particular expression specific words, ways we're used to hearing what we believe to be the truth. But in like a particular vein, I think sometimes the Reformed tradition falls prey to this in particular because we often, or maybe it's just me, everybody else can tell me if I'm wrong. We think things like, well, if I don't hear these particular words in this explanation, then it must be incorrect. And that sometimes is the problem that we run into. So I'm totally with you. I think there is this idea that of all people, Reformed people should be the most humble because we understand something about what it means that God would reach out and save us in particularly. And that in so doing that it's not because we have like the most well-articulated theology. And then of course, we're going to all be wrong on many and diverse things. And so to understand what the plain things are and that the plain things are the main things that there are, of course, of course, closed handed issues, but they're also open handed issues. We said many times before in that, that expression may on the face be very different than ours. But as we try to understand and ask questions, that often we find that, again, that center, the center of gravity, again, to go back to my previous example, is so profound that we're actually all arriving in the same place. That even though the word is slightly different, we mean when we get to like the center of things, they're critical first principles, the same thing. And sometimes what's hard is like you're listening to something, you're reading something on the internet. You can't ask those follow-up questions. You can't say like, what do you mean by that? 
And oftentimes if the person was like face-to-face with you, if you're sharing coffee or some kind of beverage, what you'd find is that, oh yeah, 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 we're, we're totally in line with that. I totally get what you're saying. Like I would say it this way. And that other person would say, oh, I would say it this way. And then you say, but we're both talking about the same thing, right? And you would say, yes. So I think that it's really helpful to be reminded that like the expression that we have, even in like some kind of presentation, even as you and I talk, is just the way that in which we're speaking, we've been taught and we feel comfortable speaking. But it doesn't mean that we are often or always at odds on these critical issues. So I'm with you. That's a good reminder. You have equally convicted me that it's good to keep that mind open that says, this is probably my brother and sister first. And then we diverge from there if necessary, but always by way of conversation and asking questions. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think part of, part of it with this particular podcast and podcaster is like her presentation is very like, um, uh, how do I even describe it? It's very like sort of theatrical the way she presents it. Like it, I'm trying, I'm trying really hard not to be pejorative. It's like really standard, like standard fair evangelical, podcast. Like I I can't even really explain what I'm trying to say. There's something about her articulation and her presentation, the way she talks and the way she explains things that makes me feel like oh, she's not really doctrinally on, she's not with it doctrinally. And that, that to me is like, that's where the self arrogance comes in is like, because, because of the style of her presentation, I'm like, well, she obviously is not a theologian. She obviously doesn't get this theology stuff. And then I hear her and like, let's be real. I'm never going to be in a podcast with DJ from full house. Like she's got more influence than I'm ever going to have. She actually is like running, like she like runs Bible studies and provides like Bible study content for like thousands and thousands of people. And I'm sitting here going like, because of the way she talks the way, because of the way she presents herself that she doesn't get. And then all of a sudden she articulates the doctrine of the Trinity. I'm like, dang. Like, right. Exactly. Oh yeah. I I need like, there was just like a gut punch from the Holy spirit that was like, you're not the only person who can sit behind a mic and articulate scripture. So if you haven't ever heard of this podcast, um, it's not anything, uh, it's not anything that's going to be like found like ground shaking. It's very, um, it's very entry level Christianity and that's what it's intended to be. Like, it's a very superficial, uh, surface level read of the scripture, but here's the beautiful thing. She is trying to get people to read the Bible and she's, she's helping a lot of people read the Bible more. We should never, ever be upset with that. We should never be opposed to it. And there are lots of times where I, I hear her explain a Bible passage or a section of scripture. I'm like, yeah, I don't think she got that. I don't think that's right. Like, I don't think that's quite right. The other day she said, um, and I'm listening to things all weird and out of order. So I don't know when in the sequence of her show this came in, but in one of her episodes, she said something like, well, angels and cherubs are clearly different kinds of beings. And I was like, I don't know if we can really justify that from scripture, but like, I shouldn't be listening to things like that where there's room for disagreement. And then immediately jumping to like, she obviously doesn't know what she's talking about. Of course. Um, so anyway, I don't want to belabor the point. It was just, a, it was just a moment of like clarity for me. And one of the things that I think people who have podcasts, Christian to have podcasts, theological podcasts, particularly one of the things that I'm, I'm convicted of is that we need to be transparent and honest about our strengths and our weaknesses. And this is an area that it just really hit me between the eyes that like, I really need to step back and like, I need to disclose this because I also know there's accountability built into making my, my weaknesses public. So I just think it's a, it's a good show. Um, and this was a good example of, of, how sometimes we we ignore or we disregard or we diminish what God may be doing in other other parts of the church and other traditions, uh, and not not out of a desire to be doctrinally pure, but just out of a desire to be doctrinally arrogant. I think is a good way to say it. Which happens like in almost every medium. Like yeah, if you if you want a really good time, go to Apple podcasts and look at the reviews on this podcast you're listening to right now because (laughs) i can tell you with great certainty every three or so reviews is somebody who is responding critically saying you guys don't know what you're talking about yeah and i mean they may in fact be right the bottom line though also is to listen for five or ten minutes about something we said especially if you're starting in the affirmations and denial section might be to prejudge the whole thing or to get the wrong idea so i'm totally with you this idea that like you can listen to somebody speak and say, yeah, I wouldn't speak like that. I mean, yeah. 
the human condition, anthropology wants homogeneity. And if we don't find the homogeneity that we think is commensurate with our own perspective or comports with our own level of comfort, I think we are naturally predisposed, especially in a sinful condition, to reject it and to not to reject it with prejudice. And I think that often comes into a presentation of theology. So if you speak differently, you don't talk like I would, you say in a different way, it's more simplistic or too sophisticated, then my natural penchant is to say, not just, no, not for me, but no, that's wrong. That's totally wrong. Yeah. That's backwards or that's not right. And that's the problem. Like, again, talk about this restoration, new heaven, new earth, all the nations, all tribes, all tongues together. What we're going to find, I think, is that not just like we're more alike, that's like some kind of like weird, just kind of humanist perspective, but that sometimes I think the difference is that we have presupposed or fabricated where in fact, these little things that we did to just push others away from us because we're uncomfortable with the expression, not because the first principles were wrong. So when we try to practice that in our own way now, in which the Holy Spirit convicts us, it's all the better. It's just very difficult. And I totally agree with you. Yeah. Well, what are you denying today or unendorsing, (laughs) anti-endorsing? The anti-endorsement, like the anti-hero. So this is like me coming within what I think is like this Pauline rubric. I love Paul when he makes these arguments from the lesser to the greater. It's just so brilliant, so helpful, so useful. And so I'm denying against trying to claim that there aren't like absolute statements, that absolute truth, and especially absolute reference points are necessary or needed. And here's my argument from the last year of the greater, for whatever reason, uh, I found myself in this situation this week where my commute is not long, but it's like long enough and the roads I traverse are annoying enough to be annoying, if that makes sense. Yeah. And there's a lot of traffic. I've never had this experience before, but I found myself behind a person in relatively low light who had their parking lights on. But it became clear rather quickly as we traversed the highway and I was behind them that their brake lights didn't work, but that the parking lights did. And this became like quickly both infuriating and super dangerous. And and more than I thought, because like it wasn't like I was riding behind them like so close, like right on their bumper. It was just that because the traffic was stop and go and because it would speed up for a great length of time and then slowed down suddenly, I really had no idea. And it was like, again, I was shocked at how ill-equipped I was to handle this situation. It's like, <laughs> just that's like way off. But I couldn't believe how I couldn't handle the fact that I knew that, yes, I could see their lights, but the fact that there were no brake lights to give me an indication, a point of reference that things were changing or that I ought to slow down or keep my distance, that I almost like I had an accident at one point. And so I, all I thought about, and maybe this was been podcasting for too long, is one, I'm going to bring this up in the podcast. And two, was that this is exactly like all of life. Like when we pull away and remove some kind of boundaries, some reference points, we lose our way entirely. And how do I know that's true? Because Paul, who makes arguments for the lesser the greater, would say, if you can't even handle a lack of brake lights in the dark, <laughs> then there's no way you can handle in any other part of life a removal of boundaries or warning lights. Yeah. So I, take that as you will. I think if anybody's driven anywhere, you'll understand exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. It's amazing how much you don't realize that you are not capable of telling that the vehicle in front of you is slowing down or coming to a stop without those little lights. Like your reaction time without those little red lights to trigger you is like not sufficient. So I'm glad you're okay. Cause that is a dangerous situation. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't maybe as bad as I said, it was maybe slightly hyperbolic in my response, but it was unnerving in a way that was unexpected if that yeah. makes sense. And I remember thinking at the time, I'm surprised at how horrible I'm doing at this. I know that this person doesn't have those engaged. I see the lights. I'm trying to track them very closely. And yet I found myself without that point of reference, like totally and literally in the dark. And then all I could think about is this is exactly what it's like when we say things like there is no absolute truth, which of course that statement collapses on itself. Or when we say things like, you know, like my way and your way is as good. Like there's only, there's many ways to the top of the mountain. Like you pick your cliche. And all I'm thinking about is it's people driving with each other in this long line of traffic without brake lights. They can see the cars ahead of them because the parking lights are on, but they are just banging into each other and then trying to pretend like, oh no, 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 it's all good. It's all good. Like that's cool. You do your thing and I'll do mine. So it's just totally, totally, totally untenable. Yeah. Yeah. That's the truth. That's the truth. We, we all, would do well to recognize that the boundaries that God sets for us and 
whether those are explicit in his law or whether it's just the boundaries of the way reality is to, to try to reject those things, uh, is it's just folly and danger. So yeah, that's a good, uh, it's a good analogy. I'm sorry that you had to discover the analogy like in life, real in life traffic, but, uh, it's a good sermon <laughs> illustration. It is so many puns, somebody, so much analogical language in so little time. Yes. I have to say we're at exactly the 30 minute mark, which we is are. as perfect timing as ever to transition <laughs> into our topic. And like I teased at the top, this is one that I, maybe I know where we're going. Maybe I don't know, but we're, we're going to talk about Christ against Christmas culture. And here is my totally like blind disclosure <laughs> because I know we're going to get the emails and that's okay. So if I can save you from like furiously and angrily and assiduously going to your computer or your phone and typing us an email at info or from brother.com, which if I was smart, I wouldn't have given you the email address. <laughs> Here's what I'll say. One, first off, me and Tony, Tony and me, we unapologetically, unreservedly, we celebrate Christmas. I think if you were to come to our places where we live, if you were come to our family gatherings, you would be hard pressed maybe to find on the face, at least anything that looks different than anybody else Yeah, because we do all the things and we're happy to do all those things Two, I would also say though, that we've gone to great lengths. And if you want to see proof of this or hear rather proof of this, you can go back. I think it's like the last year where there's an interview where I sit down with my mother and we talk about Christmas traditions in particular, and you're going to hear from her own voice, not mine or Tony's something about what it means that we celebrate and how Christ is truly at the center of that, that you're going to find that it's not even that we're trying to redeem the time. It's just that we're trying to lean into all this that this season should be and ought to be, and to do that without compunction. Number three, and this is the last thing I'll say is, and I assume we'll talk about this, though I don't really know because I have no idea what the topic's going to be about, um, that you and I, Tony, have been outspoken on this podcast about making sure that the conscience is not bound to anything yes. except the word of God. Yeah. By that standard, I'm really not particularly concerned with how other people view the way in which I perceive or understand or celebrate or embrace or lean to Christmas and everything that comes with it. I'm really not concerned because my conviction ought to come from the scripture itself. And that is, in fact, where it does come from on this topic. So I set all that up because either people will think one of two things, and they'll go to the extremes as we talk about this. Either say, my word, you all hate Christmas, and all you want to do is opine and promulgate this idea that we shouldn't celebrate it. Or they'll say, you're too Christmassy, and you ought to either keep Christ in Christmas or get Christ out of Christmas. And I would say, like, pretty unequivocally, I reject all of that. Yeah. So this may be the episode and this has been great. So honor everyone. But like, I think that's just important to say on the face because I know that when we do the Christmas episode, some people either love it or they really dislike it. There's few that are in between. I'm not trying to put forth any agenda except to say like, anytime I can celebrate the incarnation, I'm going to do that. Unbelievers are going to unbelieve. So as that applies to Christmas, I'm not too concerned. Um, my role, I think, is to honor and to worship God I want to do that if, in fact, the culture in the world that I live in gives me greater and ample opportunity to do that, also in a way that brings testimony, also in a way that means I could walk through Target or Kohl's and hear psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, I'm going to worship while I shop. And that's the bottom line. So let's talk about, with all that said, Christ against Christmas culture. It's to you, Tony, because... The, the funny part is I don't know what the episode's about either. So, yeah. So so last week we talked about kind of like in general different views that Christians have in relation to culture, right? And so we were we were relying a little bit on uh, Richard Niebuhr's uh, Richard Niebuhr's. I'm not sure it's variously three or five uh, five different categories, right? When I first read Niebuhr, it was three categories, and I don't know if there was an expansion at some at some point that I didn't read. I mean, he he stopped publishing long before I was reading, so it wasn't like a new edition came out, or or more likely people have expanded on his categories. But the the primary three categories that he wrote about was Christ against culture, 
Christ of culture and Christ above culture. Um, there's also Christ in culture and paradox. And then the last one is Christ as the transformer of culture. So we're not going to like do a week on every one of them, but I thought it would be interesting to sort of like talk a little bit about ways that as Christians, we should be against Christmas culture. And then I think in the coming weeks, we'll probably talk a little bit about the ways that as Christians, we should be in favor of of Christmas culture. And then we'll probably round that out by talking about ways that as Christians, we should look at what the, what the culture, and when I say culture, I'm not necessarily talking about what happens within the church, although there's an element of that, but our, our Western culture, right? Most, most of the people who are listening to this show live in some sort of Western ang- Anglicized culture, right? E- even like people who live in Europe that are not English speaking, it's still a Western Latinized, like Roman, like Western culture, right? And, and Western culture is deeply, deeply, deeply influenced by Christian, Christian morals. So here's, here's an interesting story is I work as a patient advocate at, uh, at our hospital patient relations advocate. And we had a, a, we had a person come in who wasn't really complaining, but they were just bringing to our attention, um, that they felt there was a, an inordinate amount of Christian symbolism around the hospital, right? It's a public hospital. As far as I know, it was never, it was, you know, it's not like it used to be called St. Joseph's or something like that. It's always been, it's always been a public hospital, not, not necessarily a Christian hospital. Um, and my colleagues were all like, that's ridiculous. I can't believe that anyone would say that. And within probably, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes of walking around the campus with with the theological training I have, the knowledge of what Christian symbolism actually is, I was able to find probably five to 10 different examples of things that were explicitly Christian symbolism present within the hospital. And it's not just things that were built 60 years ago when the hospital was new. We just built a new wing and there's a new interfaith chapel. The only symbolism in the chapel that is explicitly religious is a dove with an olive branch in its mouth, which is obviously from the flood account, right? It's a general representation of peace, but that symbol specifically comes from the Bible. So, even in quote-unquote secular cultures, there's still an enormous amount of Christian baggage that is present within that that sort of background culture. So I'm not talking. We're not necessarily talking about like the church and the way that the the Protestant church or any particular church celebrates Christmas, but out in the culture at large, this background Christianity, this background sort of like Christian hangover that the society has, it probably is the most present and most explicit at Christmas time. Right. Just like you're saying, you walk through Target or Walmart or wherever you are and you're you're hearing a mix of Mariah Carey, you know, and also like, oh, holy night, like juxtaposed with each other. You're going to walk down the aisle and you're going to see angels right next to snowmen. Right. And so there's this milieu of what Christmas kind of cultural Christmas is. And we're we're not going to have a lot of time left to talk about it. But I wanted to talk a little bit about as Christians as particularly as reformed Christians, how do we think about that culture? What elements of that do we say we should not, we ought not participate in that? Or we ought to, we ought to stand as a herald who's calling out against this kind of thing. That's what I wanted to talk about a little bit. I was like, what do we look at in the, the background of Christmas culture in, in the United States particularly? I don't know what it's like in Europe. Maybe in, in England, this just isn't a thing. But in America, this time of year, everybody gets a little bit religious. Like everybody gets a little religious. Everybody wants peace on earth and goodwill to men. Nobody realizes that that's just quoting a Bible verse. So how do we as Christians think about this? And this week we're going to talk about how do we push against some of the negative elements of that? Maybe we need to identify what those negative elements are. And we'll talk about how do we maybe like appropriate some of those elements for God's glory in the future. So this might be like a hot take, and I'm not trying to end the episode of the 38 mark here, but here's my perspective on this. I don't think there's anything present in like Western Christmas culture that isn't present any other time and all year round. Yeah. So I know, and I've said this before myself, like, especially this time of year, if we're going to go out caroling, you're going to take on your lips, like the name of God, you're going to take on your lips, the gospel proclamation, you're going to do so maybe at best kind of just inadvertently and unthinkingly, but at worst blasphemously, that's a problem. But then I thought in preparation for this, even though I didn't know what it was about, that 
anytime anybody says the words like, oh my God, and just so in a way that's like flippantly, it's the same thing. That all we're finding here is that it's just a recapitulation of this kind of thing. So I think it's actually more here for us to embrace. But like to your point, I think anytime, and your example proves this point, I believe, anytime in life the stakes are high, we necessarily import something spiritual. And sometimes we do so unwittingly, unknowingly, and unexpectedly, because even for the person that is atheistic in their tendencies, they find that they're drawn to these realities because they find themselves completely outside of themselves. And there is something that in this time of year we've been taught to believe is like mystical, spiritual. We want something transcendent. So I think like the idea that like Christmas is overly consumeristic maybe more than any other time of the year like are people more or less content this time of year than any other time of year of course not like all this does it it can be like other things that are influences outside of ourselves that we use as some kind of excuse for why we behave the way we do so the person that says like well that wasn't me because i was just drunk all that is doing is revealing and bringing up from the inside out everything that's always and in every way present but becomes manifest on the outside. And Christmas just tends to do this, at least for all of us, that we somehow want to embrace, like you said, these ideals and these principles that we ought to embrace peace. But isn't it funny, like just for a period of time, and we become like really enamored and romantic about these ideals that we want to love one another without thinking about, well, where does the peace come from? Where does the goodwill come from? Is it manufactured? Is it self-reliant? So I think that like all those things on the face, we just know as Christians, like we don't embrace those things because in doing it purely for the sake of the ends, we forsake the means and the world is all concerned about the ends without understanding the means. And so Christians are called to say, listen, we embrace the means that Jesus does this all year round, every day, all the time, every hour. But I think that all that, unfortunately, the Christian or excuse me, the Christmas culture does for just the average person is just call them to this romantic idea of mysticism and transcendence without a keen understanding of what that transcendence, what that mysticism, what that spirituality actually is. I think your average Christian doesn't have a problem understanding this. They understand they're too busy. It's not about cookies. It's not about going and looking at lights. It's, it's all well beyond that. The bottom line is, I think, is can we do this? Can we forsake those things with a clear conscience? And then I guess we'll talk about later, can we embrace what is good about it with a clear conscience? Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, I think something something that you said in there that I think is important is that what happens in the broader culture is that all of the, um, let me put it this way, all of the benefits that Christ brings us all of the benefits of Christ are explicitly separated from his person. Right. Right. And I think that's, if we're to identify the, the one top thing that Christians, and I'm going to be maybe a little bit more prescriptive here than I usually am. The one thing that I think Christians need to fight against, right. There's like the Christmas wars. Like I remember when I was a, I was a supervisor at Best Buy I worked in the Geek Squad area and I was a supervisor and I got called out to to address a pay, or a customer complaint. And the customer complaint was this this guy who was so mad that the the person doing his return or whatever said happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas, right? That is is a ridiculous situation. And and the reason is that like there's this there's this group that wants to be like let's keep Christ in Christmas, and I'm all about that. But we need to recognize what that actually means, right? It's not just it's not just about like let's tell the nativity story, right? So Christmas culture, the Western perspective on Christmas is all about like family time and generosity and peace on earth and joy and hope and all of these things, right? But all of those things are divorced in this culture from Christ who brings the benefits. Right on. And so, you know, one of the things the Reformed tradition has emphasized is like we we cannot have Christ's benefits apart from Christ himself, right? This is one of those areas where like John MacArthur in the Lordship controversy gets it is so close to being spot on. It's like you can't have Christ as Savior if you don't have him as Lord. That's true, and it's absolute truth. Christ can't give you peace on earth and goodwill to men 
apart from his person. Right, right on. God the Father does not does not show his favor. His favor does not rest on those whom he is pleased to dwell with with to dwell apart from Christ the person. So I think if I was to identify one area that Christians need to be against Christmas culture, there are probably many others, right? There is a certain level of like greed and materialism that comes along with the gift giving element of Christmas. Yes, we need to oppose greed and materialism and and just selfishness that happens this time of year. But the central element of Christmas that we need to resist is this impulse to divorce Christ from his benefits. The benefits Christ gives us, whether that's salvation, which is the way I think Reformed Christians immediately go to, like you can't have salvation apart from Christ, and you can't have salvation apart from union with Christ. But this time of year, everybody's talking about peace and reconciliation and joy and hope. Those are things that only come in Christ. So this might take the form of like when you're at a you're at a, a staff party at work, right? And they're talking about, you know, well, I hope you have a, a happy holiday and a Merry Christmas. Like the idea, I guess this is the way I would look at it. Like it's almost insulting to me when people who have no interest in Christ, both in like the classical no interest as in no, they have no part in Christ. They have no possession of Christ, but also they're not interested in in knowing Christ. When they say Merry Christmas to me, that's almost a little bit offensive um, because it, it is just sort of making Christ this buzzword. Like it's this, this background element um, to this cultural celebration. To me, that's just really problematic. So I think, and it's not easy to do, right? It's not easy for me to go into work and think like, I need to think about, do I, do I actually bring it up to my coworkers that Christmas has a very different meaning to them than it does to me when they're talking about like how Christmas is all about spending time with family. That's not at all what Christmas is about. Not, not like Christmas as in Christ's mass, Christ, the celebration of Christ's birth really has nothing to do, has nothing to do with spending time with family. Now, as Christians, especially if you're part of a Christian family, we come together to celebrate this Christian truth. And as the church, we come together as a spiritual family to celebrate this truth. That's not what Christmas is about, though. Christmas is about celebrating that God became a man and came in order to die for our sins. Like, that's what Christmas is about. So I think that's that's what I would say we need to push against. Um, I don't know. What do you think about that, Jesse? Like, is that something? Are you going to go to a staff party and be like, really, we need to put Christ back in Christmas? <laughs> That's tough. And I'm going to go back to my hot take again on this. And, and you can feel free to disagree with me on this. I understand what you're saying. And, and in many ways, I don't disagree. Of course, like I'm going to say, yeah, that's a principled misunderstanding of it. This kind of goes back to my like hashtag unbelievers going to unbelieve because yeah. in the same way, I've been to plenty of marriages and marriage ceremonies where somebody's going to evoke the marriage covenant and even use the scriptures and say under God. Yeah. And in that moment, I don't feel compelled to stand up and say, like, you've got it all wrong. Like, you're, you're ruining marriage. This is not the way God intended. So I think it's tough because I think, again, like our culture pushes as it does in marriage to, say, to, to affirm in a common grace kind of way some kind of very resolute and seemingly immutable bond between people represented yeah. in marriage. But you and I both say, like, that only happens in Christian marriage when it's the end is properly understood through the means and not by any other securities. Yeah. And the same thing happens in Christmas. I think we're often like well or more attuned to it. So we hear like people say these things and you want to be like, is that princess bride? Or like you want to be, you want to say to them, like you keep using those words. <laughs> I do not think they mean what you think they mean. So like, I get what you're saying. Like you want to call somebody out and say like, listen, I appreciate that you want to say to me, Merry Christmas. But like even there, like, and this is where Christians get like all twisted up and fired up. Or some will be like, "Christ Mass." I don't go to Mass. Yeah. Like e even there, you might have people say like, "Don't say Christmas to me," because I'm not Catholic. You know, like, and so like all of this sometimes it becomes like a profound adventure, missing the point, where we just find ourselves like kind of dispensing ourselves to the extremes on this continuum. Either we want to argue against Christmas and what Christ mass means, or we're going to argue against nobody saying Christmas to me. And they're saying happy holidays. And this comes back to like, I think to me, just thinking about the convictions that we ought to hold. So I'm with you. Maybe this is an adventure in finding the convictions that the Bible gives to us. And like ducks, as they say, we let the rest of it just wash over us. What do they say about ducks? Like it washes 
off your uh, back. Or... I know no sayings about ducks. <laughs> You're on your own. Is this some crazy New Hampshire saying that I've not been? No, no, I don't think. So. Well, I know the I know the one about like paddling, right? Like a duck looks calm on the surface, but its feet are like going crazy underneath. There's there's some kind of phrase about that, but. <laughs> So, so in a way, like I don't disagree, of course, with what you're saying. I think that sometimes it's just too easy to kind of draw attention and stuff. And then we yeah. get ourselves fired up over things. We're like, I think if you were to look, though, and you're, we were to be honest with ourselves and evaluate other points of life, life what we're going to find is that these spiritual principles are being smuggled in. And to stand up to one is to almost make the standard that we stand up to them all. And to say, like, of course, what you're doing here is something that God has ordained, but you've totally missed the point. That is Satan's jam. Like from the very beginning is to compromise all the good things that God has given us and to pervert them, but to put a varnish on them that makes them seem like they're overly tolerant and super beautiful and their superficiality. And so Christmas can be and often is just one of many things that are like that. Yeah, I guess maybe maybe to to bring this to a resolution a little bit is really, I think, yeah, there might be opportunities for us to like, this is like a, like a presuppositional apologetics kind of thing, right? There might be opportunities (laughs) to show people that they're, they exist on borrowed capital, like that their worldview exists on borrowed capital and, and the culture, the cultural celebrations of Christmas and the focus on joy and peace and hope, even like the imagery of a dove and all of this stuff, like, that's borrowed capital. So there might be some apologetic value to that, but I think the real benefit is in us recognizing for ourselves that we need to unite. We need to view Christ and his benefits as united. We we don't yeah, get sure. the benefits that Christ gives us apart from getting Christ. Maybe that's what we need to look at. But I also think, you know, I think the other element of it, and maybe we'll talk about this in a future episode too, is like some of what makes this tricky and what makes this like challenging for us as Christians to think about is that Christmas itself is not a Christian celebration in like the strictest sense of the word, right? Of We've course. talked about that before. We don't have to belabor the point, but like the Bible doesn't command us to have a special celebration regarding Christ's incarnation, right? There's no, there's no Christian festival associated with uh, with with the incarnation that's prescribed in the Bible, right? Except There's no the Christian festival apart from the Lord's Day that's is prescribed for us for the resurrection or for Pentecost or any other event in redemptive history. So some of this too, I think, and as as evangelicals or maybe like evangelically adjacent people like ourselves, like we have this feeling of like, we should really be doing something for Christmas. Like we really should be doing some sort of celebration. So sometimes it's hard for us to push against what the culture is doing too. But I think that's part of like what this is, is if we're to, if we're to really gain a good understanding of what the meaning of Christmas is, the real true genuine meaning of Christmas, we have to be willing to sort of like step back and recognize that even like, even the Chris, Christian, the genuinely churchly expressions of Christmas, 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 <laughs> even the genuinely churchly expressions of Christmas, there's a lot of like sounds. Even those things are, are actually sort of foreign to like biblical sure. conceptions and biblical logic. So I think that's part of why we struggle with it this time of year. Like even in this conversation, we're sort of struggling to like articulate, like, what do we push against? What do we, what do we accept? Some of it's hard because like it's Christmas, like this is a celebration of Christ's birth, at least from the Christian perspective. So, but we have to also grapple with the fact that like the Bible doesn't give us any special instructions to do something particular to celebrate Christ's birth. There's no nativity feast. There's no incarnation feast. There's no prescription for a special Christian festival. And we've talked about this before, like just like every Lord's day should be a celebration of, uh, of the resurrection. In another sense, every Lord's day should also be a celebration of the incarnation, right? Right The crucifixion, like every Lord's day should celebrate and not like explicitly. It's not like we have to, have to hit all of the points on every single Sunday, but every Lord's day should be a celebration of what God has done for us in the economy of redemption. And I think that's another thing maybe we can think about at Christmas time a little bit is that the particular emphasis on the nativity 
Uh, and I, I say the nativity and not the incarnation, because even within the church, there is sometimes more of a focus on the temporal elements that sort of, um, I don't want to say disregards, but maybe underemphasizes the incarnational elements of Christmas in favor of like the baby in the manger and the flight to Egypt and the wise men and the angels. Those are all elements. They're all in the Bible. Those are all things that we should talk about and preach about and celebrate. But the, the, if we're doing that apart from the reality, apart from a, a conscious explicit understanding that this baby in the manger is also the God of the universe, we've kind of missed the plot. We've lost the plot on that as well. I think. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, there's so much again in this time of season just betrays the fact that mankind was made to live forever with God reconciled and whole, fully created and fully redeemed. And you see that just like part and parcel, every little bit, there's something. And of course, like there are things that are just like tradition or are born out of even like pagan symbology, but like that, that's okay. Like if you want to have a Christmas tree, have a Christmas tree. I mean, it, because I think that for the Christian who says it's not about that thing, you need not feel guilty about that thing. So to push back against like Christmas culture is to push back against every other perversion of what it means to follow Jesus yeah. and to understand what it means that Christ has redeemed those whom he's called unto himself. And it's a silly and is present in things like, I don't know if you've done this before, but if you just look up like what internationally people call Santa Claus, who, who, by the way, of course, there's like some historic kind of provenance there in terms of its genesis, just the name itself. Like if you look, especially to like the more like um, some of the, I would say like European countries, like I think this is true, like Austria, Switzerland, Germany, they call Santa Claus, somebody who's a listener, correct me on this, call like Chris Crindle. All of this idea that it sounds so close to Christ himself, that here you have an exemplification of one who comes generously, but with a certain sense of judgment to bring gifts in an unreserved way for those who are have the favor of the gift giver. All of this thing, I think if you just look at it and, and if you were up from the outside and you were saying, well, that sounds like, that's exactly the point. So I think to your idea here of saying like, where should we push back and all the places we normally push back. But I think we have to, at the end of the day, just like everything else with respect to Christmas, understand what it means to have our conscience bound explicitly and entirely and unreservedly by the word of God. And that should influence all things, including this time of year. But my perspective, if nobody's asked, but it's our podcast, no rules. (laughs) My perspective on Christmas generally is if you want some, come and get some. And it's the idea of like, if somebody says to me, like, what do you do? How do you celebrate? What do you do with your family? I'm going to say things that are just purely honest, like, my mother bakes a cake every year for Jesus because it's his birthday. Yeah. This idea of celebrating the fact that we're contingent beings, that God comes and dwells, like he is like carne canasada, like in flesh, and he comes to tabernacle and to hang out and to dwell and to have perfect obedience to the law. Like there, in some ways, to your point, I can say all of that by saying my mother makes this cake and we sing happy birthday to Jesus, and we celebrate him. Yeah. If you want to ask more about that, I'm happy for you too. If, if you just go and say, that was super weird, and I will never have a Christmas conversation ever again with Jesse, <laughs> that's also fine too, because hashtag unbelievers are going to unbelieve. Yeah. So I think the bottom line is our testimony is secure in so much as we celebrate everything that's here. And it's like for most cultures, especially in the West, it serves up, it tees up, this amazing opportunity for you just to respect and worship God in the most open way as is possible in our current times more than any other time of the year. And so it's okay to embrace that while also saying like, I think most Christians would recognize like, again, it's not about the gifts. It's not about the tree. It's not about just getting together. All these things to your point, Tony, are like natural bribe products, our serendipitous, our part and parcel of the good gifts that Christ gives us. But the first and primary gift, the one that is the paragon and gets hegemony over everything, is Jesus Christ himself. And because love means and always leads to giving, for God so loved the world that he gave, that everything that we do, including the gift giving itself, under the right attitude and in the right rubric, is an act of worship and reflection and meditation on the first gift that was given to us. 
in the love that we express, we come under the terms of understanding that we love because God first loved us. I, I think for the most part, maybe even the nominal Christian understands this, but it's just a matter of embracing that, understanding it with greater, I would say like efficacy and energy. So I don't know where we go from here, but I'm with you. Like it's, it's helpful to have these conversations, at least for me, because it actually gets me more fired up for this season. Because I think for far too long, I've been under this sense, maybe this even dark cloud, that like I can't embrace it fully because it might mean other things to other people. But that's the same attitude that you and I have talked about with like alcohol or card playing or dancing or video games or reading things that are not the scriptures. So like we have to have an understanding that God decides, he sets and defines and distills our conviction when we ask that the Holy Spirit fills us and leads us into truth. And maybe this should be not different than anything else in which we ask him to come and bear that way. Yeah. Well, Jesse, we'll, we'll have more conversations about this in the coming weeks. You know, we'll talk about uh, some of the cultural elements that are out there. Like th- there's a lot of cultural celebration of Christianity or of Christmas. There's a lot of symbolism out there. And I think it'll be helpful for us to talk about like what, like you mentioned, like the Christmas tree. Like, we'll talk yeah. about that. Like, is it okay to have a Christmas tree? What do we do oh, with that? Geez. I think that'll be what we'll talk about probably next week is like, how do we deal with some of this symbolism? Is it okay for Christians to do these things? You know, spoiler, Jesse already said it. We have a Christmas tree. We we give gifts. You know, we drink eggnog. Like, it, yes, it's totally oh, I do love eggnog. Do is love eggnog, eggnog controversial? I mean, I think eggnog is, eggnog is controversial, but probably, I don't think it's spiritually controversial. I mean, unless you're like John MacArthur and don't want to talk about alcohol, like don't want to drink alcohol. Although the eggnog we drink doesn't typically. Yes, I've never had alcoholic eggnog. Maybe it's great. I'm sure it is. Maybe we should have alcoholic eggnog. This yeah, I'm. I mean, I'm. I'm sure. What? Well, like, can we tease that? We'll save that for like another episode. Yes, probably tease it, and then we'll just never do it. Like half the stuff we say, we're gonna do whenever we never we never pay out. Somewhere down the road, we're gonna have like all these apps that we've developed and websites and things. But I think it'll be good for us to talk about some of those things because I think that's where a lot of people get like tripped up. It's like, what do we do with this stuff? Yeah. And this is where the where Niebar's, uh, Niebar's views come in. It's like some people would be like, that Christmas tree is a monument to idolatry. You better get it out of your house. And some people will be like, it's just a, like, it's just a decoration. And I think that the truth is that it's probably somewhere in the middle there. There's probably some element of wisdom that we need to exercise, but I don't want to do a whole nother episode right now. We'll do that next week. Yeah, we'll we'll do that. But Jesse, until we do that next week, honor everyone. Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm putting a pause in for just a second because it is like, I I, I don't know if, well, I'm going to go out on a limb here because I'm totally interrupting. I would hardly ever do this, but because it is the season of gift giving and all that I mean is like, if you're looking for excuse to show people that you love them by giving them a little something, is it true? This could end horribly right now. Is it true that we still have a website and there's a website where you could find reformed brotherhood kind of oriented apparel if you were so inclined? Jesse, you know, you and I are like telepathically linked because I actually had the shop was it store.reformbrotherhood.com website up yes yes i actually had it up and was going to talk about our merch and yes. then i, okay, I, I abandoned that at the last minute no no quick 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 so you can go to store.reformbrotherhood.com we don't have a lot of gear to be honest with you we haven't we haven't like spent a ton of time developing products but you can get some cool stuff there like if you just had a baby you can get a onesie and all this unapologetically I developed the Reformed Brotherhood onesie because I had a baby Well, my wife had a baby and I wanted to see him in a onesie. But you can get that. You can get stickers. The mugs are probably our best sellers. Yeah, they're great. Uh, you can get pint glasses and also we have t-shirts. It's kind of like past the zeitgeist, but you can get a Reformed Brotherhood face mask if you live in an area where people are wearing face masks again and you, you want to join the wave. But uh, yeah, you can go there. We may or may not be developing some more merch in the future, so you may see some new offerings there, or maybe not. I don't know. Depends on how much time I have. But yeah, you can go to store.reformbrotherhood.com if you'd like to purchase a t-shirt. We have one listener. I'm not going to say his name. We have one listener. I'm not really sure what is going on in this guy's life, but every it's it's a fairly regular sequel a sequence that he comes back in and buys one Reform Brotherhood t-shirt on like a fairly regular cycle. Respect. So he must just wear those things out. So total respect. You know who you yes. are. 
Uh, but we would love it if you'd buy some of our merchandise. They're a good conversation starter. Uh, maybe it's more of a conversation starter when I wear it because people are like, is that your face on your chest? And why does that other person look so much like you? And I say, well, it's a podcast and that's my brother-in-law. And yes, he does. We do look a little bit alike. So yeah, store.reformbrotherhood.com. Amazing. My favorite, in case anybody's curious, the t-shirts are super fun. I have a, a good friend who we, we attend the same church and unbeknownst to me, he went and secured one of these shirts. I showed up at a practice where he was wearing it and it was, uh, I was the most sweaty I've been in a long time. Just seeing that for some reason, <laughs> yeah, made me feel so awkward, but uh, it's super fun. And all I want to add to that, and you did, I mean, that was amazing promotion, Tony. <laughs> well, well done. I mean, I know I interrupted, but you just handled that perfectly. It's as if we actually fabricated the whole thing, which we didn't. The only thing I want to add is, the reason why I bring it up is because maybe you're looking for just like a fun gift. Maybe you're looking for an elephant gift and then you can give it to people and be like, who are these two fools? And you could be like, Oh, have I got a podcast for you? <laughs> maybe that person is like Merry Christmas. And you're like, how dare you, sir? Let me give you a podcast to listen to. But is because every little bit, there's a portion of all those perks that goes just to fund the podcast. So we do that as a way to, we're just appreciative of people that want to like rally around what we're doing here. And um, I was recently looking at uh, the Reform Brotherhood chat on Telegram, and you can go to t.me backslash Reform Brotherhood if you want to join a group of people who are chatting, all that stuff. But uh, I just love that on uh, American Thanksgiving, so many people are posting like, happy Thanksgiving, somebody just happy Thanksgiving, comma, RB. And I thought, that's what it's about, is Christians together celebrating, speaking with one another. There's a community here that is outside of us. It just so happens that in this small little corner of the world, we slapped the label RB on it. And again, if you want to identify with that by way of purchasing like a mug, which are great, t-shirt, super fun, baby onesie, because you want to put <laughs> two dudes' faces on your baby's chest, that is fine with me. And again, it goes to make sure that there are no paywalls and that you can count on us being awkward, but what will never be awkwardly presented on this podcast are some kind of ads. So I'm just going to close this up, Tony. Because of that, let me continue where you started and I rudely interrupted. Let's honor everyone love the brotherhood